He was born January 22, 1931, in Clarksdale, Mississippi. And before his untimely death at the young age of 33, he had 34 top 40 hits in his eight years as a pop star. 25 were written by him. He was a rags-to-riches story that others would emulate. He was generous, kind, and hungry for knowledge. He would leave behind a legacy, no matter what his death might foreshadow. This was Sam Cooke, singer, songwriter, changemaker. He always knew he was destined for great things. Welcome, my name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. The Los Angeles newspapers would scream out the headlines on December 11, 1964, quote, Sam Cooke, Negro singing star, was shot to death early today by a woman motel manager after he burst into her apartment in pursuit of a Eurasian girl he met in a bar, end quote. This horrible series of events happened in the wee hours of the morning, but it didn't take long for reporters to be on the scene. This is what the events, taken at face value, would tell us. And just go ahead and put the word allegedly in front of all these statements because most of it is not fact. Allegedly, Sam Cook and his date drove 15 miles from the upscale club they were both at to the Hacienda Motel just before 3 a.m. The hotel in question is in an area of Los Angeles that is considered more of the seedy district. A lot of crime, a lot of poor housing, but he drove his brand new 1964 red Ferrari up to the front office. He alone went into the office, which was apparently open at the time, signed himself in while the woman, Elisa Boyer, waited in the car. The overnight hotel manager, 55-year-old Bertha Lee Franklin, looked over his shoulder and saw the woman and insisted he sign in as a married couple. So he added Mr. and Mrs. to his name, paid in cash, drove his car around to the back of the motel to park in front of their door. Once inside, Sam Cook, who had been drinking, locked the door and forced Ms. Boyer to the bed where he proceeded to forcefully remove her clothing. She is on record saying, quote, I started talking very loudly. Please take me home. He pinned me to the bed. He kept saying, We're just going to talk. He pulled my sweater off and ripped my dress. I knew he was going to rape me. End quote. Then, during the middle of this impending rape, she asked to use the bathroom and her assailant paused his molesting to allow her to go. She claimed she was going to attempt an escape from the bathroom window, but it was painted shut. So she returns to her attacker. Another round of groping, her assailant decides he needs to use the bathroom. Boyer sees this as her opportunity. She scoops up all of the clothes and runs out of the motel room. She says she stopped in the stairwell, or alley depending on the source, got dressed, and went to a phone booth to call the police, claiming to have been kidnapped. The police document the call at 3.08 a.m. Cook, suddenly enraged that his victim escaped, puts on one shoe and a sports jacket, the only clothing left, 
Not a windbreaker type sport jacket, but a suit coat. The one you might wear to a business meeting or an upscale dinner. From there, he storms out of his room and goes to bang on the door of the office, which apparently is closed for business now, less than 30 minutes later. There is no reply. He goes back, drives his car around to the front, leaving it running and the door open. He storms the front door, demanding to know where the girl went. The manager, Bertha, still fully dressed in her day clothes, claims she had not seen her and he's not coming in unless he has the police. She testified in court, quote, He kept saying, where's the girl? Where's my money? I told him to get the police if he wanted to search the place, end quote. Then, uncharacteristically, Sam's temper escalates as he bursts through the door, breaking it from its hinges and searches the office and apartment for the woman. Bertha recounts, quote, We got in a tussle. We fell to the floor. I tried to bite him through the jacket. She claims that Cook was on top of her, saying, quote, He was twisting my arm, holding me down there on the floor, end quote. Bertha, able to free herself from the drunken madman, makes her way to the television set, and there, sitting on top of it, is a twenty-two caliber handgun. She points it at her attacker and shoots three times. She claims he said, quote, Lady, you shot me, end quote. She puts the gun down, changes weapon to a broom, because he apparently lunged at her again. She then clocks him with the broom handle on the back of the head as he falls to the floor. Evelyn Carr, the owner of the hotel, was supposedly on the phone and heard most of the altercation. She hung up when she heard the gunshots and called the police at 3.15 a.m. When the police arrived at the scene, they found the Ferrari still running, door wide open, and Sam Cooke dead, slumped in the doorframe of the broken door. They didn't know who he was for hours. I guess they didn't check the registry. In a quick search, the police found a bottle of scotch, a money clip with $108 folded neatly in it, loose change, a newspaper that was folded and tossed in the back, and a wristwatch. Elisa Boyer came to the police identifying herself as the kidnapped victim. The whole police investigation was brief, not realizing who he was, I'm sure, but then the body was taken to the coroner for an autopsy. Neither woman was held in police custody. As the sun crept into the sky, the news was blasted worldwide. Sam Cooke was dead. During the inquest, it was determined that Bertha Franklin acted in self-defense and was released. Justifiable homicide, it was announced. I have so many things to say. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret with Bag of Bones. As a full-time author and amateur historian, I'm out here traveling alone across the United States. I like to know that I can travel safely. That's why I love Damsel in Defense. From tasers to mace, I can be confident knowing that I can defend myself, allowing the world of travel to be open to me. Damsel in Defense offers a variety of self-defense items to choose from, and you can decide what is best for your comfort level. And now I can feel safe while out and about, in my truck, and even at home in my camper. I love this company's mission and dedication to quality. And thanks to Damsel in Defense, I can offer you this exclusive link and you can take control of your safety too. Check out their full product line at www.mydamselpro.net forward slash bones. That's www.mydamselpro.net 
bones. Fact. Sam Cooke's body was found dead at the Hacienda Motel just after 3 a.m. December 11, 1964. He was wearing only a suit coat and one shoe. Fact. His death was caused by a bullet that entered under his left armpit, hit his left lung, continued through his heart, and then through his right lung. Fact. He had multiple wounds, as seen in photos, on his forehead, hands, and knee that were not mentioned in the autopsy report. Fact. Martin J. Machat was hired by Alan Klein, Cook's producer, to defend. He was either not allowed to question the witnesses or chose not to aggressively pursue the truth, as his participation was minimal compared with other cases he was involved in. Fact. The courts closed the case with justifiable homicide. Boyer and Franklin were released. Fact. It is recorded that the gun was fired three times, but only two bullets were found. There are quite a few conspiracy theories surrounding the death of Sam Cooke. I don't want to spend this time attempting to prove one or another of those, but only to offer the few things that I have discovered in my research. I am an armchair detective like several thousand others out there, and I'm just sharing my discoveries. Eric Green, the great-nephew of Sam Cooke and author of Our Uncle Sam, the Sam Cooke story from his family's perspective, writes, quote, Since December 1964, the sketchy facts surrounding Sam Cooke's death have been a topic of discussion by fans worldwide. Some see him as being in the wrong place at the wrong time, or a victim of his lifestyle catching up with him, or any one of a number of open and shut explanations. Some hint at conspiracy to make an example out of an outspoken black entrepreneur. Others have insisted the hit was mob-related. The Cook family has commonly held to the belief that the whole scenario was a setup. End quote. Some backstory, and I guess some future story. On the day of the murder, it was said by several people who saw Cook at Martoni's, where he had dinner, and PJ's, the nightclub he went to immediately after, that he was flashing a lot of money. He had a quote-unquote wad of cash that he was spending on drinks that night, and none of it was found at the scene. Elisa Boyer would say that she saw or met Sam a few days prior to the 10th of December, but it was not substantiated and had false facts within the statement. For example, she said that she had heard him sing at the restaurant Martoli's when the restaurant has no equipment or stage and does not offer entertainment. The establishment was popular with several well-known performers, and you'd think that if that was the case, there would be a lot of singing going on all the time. No one remembers seeing Ms. Boyle with Sam Cooke before that date, but everyone remembered her presence with him on the 10th. According to her statement during the inquest, she repeatedly asked Mr. Cook to take her home, but he insisted on driving to the motel, disregarding several options for temporary sleeping arrangements along the way. She would also contradict herself several times at the inquest, and it goes without being called out. For example, she would say that he was drunk and his driving frightened her, but later she would say, quote, I don't believe he was drunk. I am sure he had one or two, but I am sure that he wasn't drunk, end quote. 
Two months later, Elisa Boyer was arrested for prostitution. Two years later, she was sent to jail for the murder of her boyfriend. She was released when she was 76, and when investigators found her, she repeated her story verbatim, as she did in the courtroom, and refused to take any further questions. Bertha Lee Franklin, it was discovered post-trial, to have been arrested several times as a prostitute herself, and some incidents claim that she was a madam. She did go on to sue the Cook Estate for mental and physical damages to the tune of $200,000, in which the Cook family countersued for some other reason, and I think it ended up with Franklin winning $30,000. That's a lot of money in the 1960s. The details of her death are conflicting. There's one account that says she died a month and a half later, and another says that she lived until 1989. Both say she died of a heart attack. Even though Sam Cooke was America's angel, his smile, his swagger, his lyrics, he was a bit of a ladies' man. He would be plagued with paternity suits throughout his career. He had three children with his wife Barbara, and one was out of wedlock prior to Sam's first marriage, and acknowledged several others on documentation to his music publishing rights. However, he has no history of hiring prostitutes no history of violent behavior, and this was not the first time he's been under the influence of alcohol, and there is no record of violence or erratic behavior. In fact, at the time, he and his wife were on the verge of divorce, and it would have been a great opportunity for her to jump on the bandwagon and drag down his personal character. She did none of that. His children and his family, Others in the business and his associates all step up to credit his mild-mannered behavior. Everyone also comes to his defense with the choice of location. Eric Green would write, quote, They, the Cook family, immediately dismissed the facts as presented because they knew certain things about his nature. Sam would never have forced himself on a woman, any woman. While he was known to have his trysts, he would routinely turn down dozens of propositions from women who threw themselves at him. Sam always did everything first class. As a successful entertainer and businessman, his clothes were tailor-made and he drove the finest cars. He was sporting a new 1965 Ferrari the night of his murder. The thought of him checking into a $3 a night motel would be laughable if the situation weren't so gravely serious." The only other person in the account of the night of his death is the hotel owner who was said to be on the phone when the events took place. Her phone records were never checked, and her testimony was never questioned. And finally, the attorney, Martin J. Machat, that represented Cook, barely said a word. Machat was known in the business to be a tiger in the courtroom, representing other stars such as the Coasters and the Platters and more. But on this occasion... He kept silent, allowing things to flow along as they did, not questioning, not objecting, not inserting. In short, he did not defend his client. The entire session was over in two hours. Side note, in the small courtroom, Bertha Lee Franklin, who shot the gun, was seated in the front row in front of Sam's father and Sam's wife. I don't know how that wasn't a mini-brawl in and of itself. Now. As there is about to be a lot of ifs coming your way. If Elisa Boyer was held against her will, 
Why didn't she run when Sam went into the motel to register and left her in the car? Boyer claims that at the inquest, she walked in behind Cook and proclaimed very loudly, quote, Mr. Cook, please take me home. But Franklin claims she didn't say anything and looked to be accompanying him willingly, to where Boyer claimed he roughly grabbed her by the arm and dragged her to the motel room. One version said he drove to their room, and this other version says he walked to their room. If Elisa Boyer was in the process of being raped, being dragged to his room, her clothes being ripped off, how much sense does it make for him when she asks to use the bathroom to say, oh, okay, and then when she comes back, decides after a few more moments of molesting that he has to leave to use the restroom? Yes, the door may be locked, but hotels can be opened from the inside when locked as we discover when she grabs the clothes to make her escape. According to Boyer, in her escape, she was surprised to find she had inadvertently grabbed Sam's clothing as well. She claims she stuffed them under a stairwell. They have never been found, nor has his wallet and the large amount of cash that was supposedly in his pocket. The police say they checked Boyer's purse and documented that she only had a $20 bill. What was Bertha Franklin doing on the phone at 3 a.m.? And if she was on duty accepting new customers for rooms and whatnot, why wouldn't the office door still be unlocked? If she felt threatened by a mostly naked man she can see through the glass door, why not grab the gun right away? During the inquest in the court records, Franklin was asked what distance she was from Cook, and her reply was, quote, he wasn't too far, he was at close range, end quote. Thinking back to the wound that claimed his life, either he was lunging at her sideways, on his knees, arms raised above his head, or he had his arms up over his head protecting himself, which means it was not justifiable homicide. He had no weapon and was not on the attack. Bertha Franklin was not in fear for her life. And since we're on Bertha Franklin, it's mentioned that her gun was registered and legal. However, her gun is a 32 caliber, and the weapon used to kill Cook was a 22. And finally, she claimed that after she shot him, he lunged at her again where she defended herself with a broomstick instead of the gun she would have already had in her hand. She would say, quote, it was very flimsy. The first time I hit him, it broke, end quote. The officer's report claims that Franklin sustained no injuries, but, quote, had a large amount of blood on her clothing, end quote. However, if you look at the photos taken of her mere hours after the event, first of all, she's smiling, and second, there's a smattering of blood spatter. If a man is shot through the heart, there would be a lot of blood, If said shot man lunged at Franklin after the fact, would she not be covered in blood as well? And the detective assigned to the case would testify that Franklin had, quote, spots which appeared to be blood, end quote. Could be blood or were blood? Blood that belonged to the deceased or to Franklin? We don't know because the blood type had never been tested. The autopsy would report a few small scratches on Cook's body and a two-inch lump on the right side of his head that bulged. There was no evidence of blood on the broken flimsy broomstick handle. 
However, family and friends would notice on his corpse at the funeral that he had a huge lump on his forehead, skin missing from his knuckles that was covered with makeup, a dislocated nose, and his only surviving photo from the night shows contusions on his knee. Some of the family would say that, quote, his fingernails were raw and ragged, end quote. I believe that the funeral home would do their best to make the body look as presentable and at peace, so they would be inclined to cover bruises and scrapes with heavy makeup. But I don't believe that they would allow his nails to be raw and ragged. They would most likely be neatly filed. There was an external review of the original pathology report by forensic pathologist Dr. Rodney Muhammad, as presented in his book by Eric Green, quote, I believe that Sam was hit over the head at another location, transferred to the hacienda, dragged from his car into Bertha's apartment, dumped onto the floor, and shot point-blank, end quote. He also mentioned that there was no mention of how much rigor mortis had set in, which would have been able to give more telling details about the time of death and if there was a struggle and how intense it was. Eric Green writes, quote, since forensic technology has advanced tremendously since 1964, the possibility of bringing closure to a case like this seems promising. That is, until you realize that every aspect of Sam's death mysteriously doesn't exist anymore. For example, it is now impossible to review the case file containing original police reports. It's been lost. Missing from evidence is Bertha Franklin's bloodied dress, the fatal bullet, Sam's clothes, Bertha's gun, even the flimsy broomstick. The motel registration card Sam signed is missing. Also missing are pictures from the death scene of the missing official, he puts in quotes, crime scene photos in Sam's case. There is one picture that seems to resurface more than others. It shows Sam's lifeless body slumped against the broken door jamb. He's wearing the black sport coat and has one leg folded under his body. There is no visible amount of blood. Sam is naked from the waist down, though the picture I've seen is cropped where his genitals begin. It was almost as if the body had been propped to highlight the embarrassment of his nakedness and the humiliation of wearing one shoe, end quote. Side note, the specific photo that he mentions, the cropped version, can be seen at www.ragtagnetwork.com forward slash bag of bones, along with all of the others that I've mentioned. I would love to hear your comments on what you see in the photos. So, I guess this leaves us with the conspiracies. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but do you know that the Ragtag Network has its own merch? You can get merch for your favorite shows such as Bag of Bones, Save Me an Aisle Seat, or Total Tomfoolery. Just visit www.ragtagnetwork.com slash merch now to check things out. The first conspiracy and the most popular that comes up is that Franklin, the former madam, and Boyer, the prostitute, were in cahoots. While it is true that the motel in question, the Hacienda, was known as a place prostitutes frequented to conduct business, but it is also known that Sam Cooke, who has worked so hard to get out of poverty, loved his wealth and would never willingly go to such a place. He had plenty of options to stop at a nicer hotel along the way. Eric Green would write, quote, 
absolutely no one in my family believes Sam voluntarily checked into the Hacienda Motel with Lisa Boyer and his brothers and sisters will go to their graves saying the idea of Sam raping one woman and attacking another in a cheap motel is preposterous, end quote. I hear you, that's family. We all want to believe the best of our family members. So let's just take their opinion out of the equation. If this was just a regular John roll, which is the term used in the profession to steal the clothes from the John who hired the prostitute, who would be less likely to chase after them without any clothes and be humiliated enough not to pursue it further. If that was the case, Franklin would not have contradicted her co-conspirator on the witness stand. They were both in the small room and heard each other's statements. Franklin said Boyer didn't put up a fight, and Boyer claimed kidnapping. And then, if it was just another sting operation of a John, why would Boyer call the police? She got the money. She got his wallet. It should have been a done deal. But she called the police seven minutes before Franklin. She wanted the police to show up. Could they have both been paid off for their roles that evening? I believe their character profiles would say yes. Others ask, could he have been lured there? Doubtedly, again, he wouldn't have wanted to be seen in such a place. But what if he wasn't the one driving? What if she was? His blood was only checked for alcohol content and it measured 0.14, but it wasn't checked for any other toxins. It was known that Cook did not partake in drugs other than alcohol, therefore finding something in his blood work sure would be interesting. But there was no witnesses that said he was driving other than Franklin when they pulled up to the motel. Moving on to the Alan Klein theory. This one has some weight to it simply because there's a paper trail. Alan Klein was Cook's producer. He entered the scene in 1963 with Cook already having several top hits under his belt, four that managed to reach the top ten status. Klein's job was to help Cook get more rights from his record deals with RCA by renegotiating his contract. Sam Cook felt that Klein would help him take his business goals to the next level. Alan Klein convinced Cook to put his businesses under one umbrella company for tax purposes and slowly, through several paper transactions, took Cook from being the president and owner of the company, Tracy Limited, which governed all of Cook's music, his songs that he wrote, the rights for pretty much everything, to being less than a board member or an officer. Klein completely removed Cook and Cook's trusted people, including his father, in any decision-making capacity and replaced them with himself and his wife. Alan Klein constructed the deal that would give RCA recording exclusivity to RCA for 30 years, but then all rights would return to Tracy Limited. It was a brilliant move, but one that double-benefited Klein. Klein ended up owning the rights to all of Sam Cooke's library. Sealing the deal in April of 1966, Barbara Cook, Sam's wife, would end up selling her portion of any rights to RCA for a mere $103,000. Then RCA, within the year, sold them to Klein. Cook's family or children receive no royalties or benefits from his music and have no voice in what is done with them. Agnes, Sam's youngest sister, would say, quote, 
What she, Barbara, did destroyed everything he worked so hard to build. Everyone close to Sam knew he never wanted that. End quote. This conspiracy theory is sometimes quickly dismissed by saying, Why would Klein want him dead? He was making money for him. Klein would even tell the LA Times in an article printed in 1986, quote, Sam was a smash at the Copa his second time, and we booked him on TV and booked him into Vegas and into Miami. He even did a screen test for 20th Century. All these things were coming to fruition. The world was catching up with Sam Cooke and his music. Everything was in place, end quote. But here's why the theory still stands. Sam Cooke saw a big future for himself in the music business. People say that he would have rivaled Motown if his visions were to come to fruition. Up until this point, all musicians, their music, the rights, the terms, all the things, were governed by white producers, attorneys, labels, and they were taking the lion's share. Cook felt that he should be paid for every ounce of sweat that he was giving up for the success of his creations. It was no secret that Sam Cooke was openly defiant of the traditional ways things had been done. In one way, he was fighting to end segregation by refusing to perform to segregated audiences. And he would regularly encourage other musicians to take an interest in having a hand at forging their own careers. He was definitely rocking the boat of the usually undisputed record industry. Green uncovered a quote by Elvis Presley, who believed that Cook was murdered for his outspoken and arrogant behavior. Quote, Cook was told he had a big mouth to stay in line and he didn't do it. You can only go so far, end quote. It is believed by his family they claim he discussed his future plans with them. Sam was getting ready to go into another direction in the new year. A change was going to come, so to speak. He was ready to separate from Klein. Maybe even he suspected him of some double dealings. But he had very specific ideas of how he wanted to bring in new artists and have control over his music and be a beacon of hope for the black artists to come. Klein continued to make money from Cook's library for the rest of his life and probably wouldn't have been able to say that had Sam Cook lived. Eric Green writes, quote, Sam wanted to ensure he didn't die like most black entertainers of his era, with his lifelong efforts lining the pockets of others. Yet, in Sam's worst nightmare, what he had worked a lifetime to avoid and fought to the death to keep from coming true had indeed become a reality. End quote. Ms. Barbara, always investigate the spouse. As he was discussing his plans for 1965, he had decided to divorce Barbara. It was only a year earlier that they lost their 18-month-old son, Vincent, who drowned in the family pool, and they just couldn't recover from it as a couple. They had been teenage sweethearts, and she was a teenage mother with Sam's child, Linda, who was born in 1953. Oddly enough, he became a father to two other baby girls by two other additional teens that same year. He went off and instead married someone else completely different. After that marriage to Dolores failed, he came back to Barbara and they were married in 1958. They had two more children, Tracy in 1960 and Vincent in 1961. 
Sam most likely had never really been faithful, but Barbara was also guilty, and she would throw her affair in everyone's face the day of her husband's funeral. Eric Green wrote, quote, Barbara was not above suspicion in Sam's death, and her peculiar actions only fueled notions of her involvement. Sam had been aware of her relationship with Bobby Womack, but the entrance they made at Sam's Los Angeles funeral caused a horrific gasp among the unsuspecting crowd. Arriving to the service in Sam's Rolls Royce, Barbara and Bobby exited arm-in-arm, with Bobby dressed in the dead man's shirt, slacks, and port coat. Not humbled by the negative backlash from Sam's funeral, Barbara then asked Alan Klein to halt a private investigation into Sam's homicide, citing its results wouldn't bring her husband back anyway. Alan Klein would tell the Los Angeles Times in 1986, quote, I remained silent because the only thing people wanted to write about in the beginning was, quote, the manner in which he died, unquote, and we didn't want to comment on it because Barbara Cook said at the time, will it bring him back? We had undertaken an investigation at the inquest to find out what really happened, but she said, Look, I've got two little kids. It's going to be painful for them. Why don't we forget it? So from then until early last year, in deference to Barbara and the children, we decided to say nothing. End quote. For an interview with Jet Magazine, March 18, 1965, titled Widow of Slain Singer, Marries. It reads, quote, 21 days before her marriage to Bobby Womack in Los Angeles last February 26th, 29-year-old Barbara Cook, widow of slain pop singer Sam Cook, sat in a marbled and mirrored room that was her husband's studio and talked of life, love, and death. Quote, I feel that Sam would certainly want me to do this. Barbara insisted of her then-upcoming marriage 77 days after the death of her husband. I feel, and he did too, that time has nothing to do with it. There is so little time to be happy. So if you find it and you want it, you should pursue it. Be happy in love. This was like our motto. Be happy whatever it takes. I don't feel that I'm taking anything from anybody. My kids are happy and that was my first concern. If you have wealth, you are blessed. And if you can acquire love at any stage of the game, this is beautiful. I know Bobby's going to be a big success. This is what Sam wanted for him. He told me many times he was going to be a big man. Bobby and I are very, very happy. But I just want people to know that Sam and I were in love. And all you can do is love a person until they die. End quote. So yes, you heard right. Barbara Cook married Bobby Womack. Who could thank Sam Cooke for giving him and his brothers a musical career? He was one of the first bands Cooke would sign on to his new label. They intended to be married 66 days post-Sam's funeral, but Bobby was not yet of legal age and his father refused to consent, so they waited a few more days until Bobby turned 21. Less than three months after burying her husband and halting a possible murder investigation, Barbara Cooke sole executor of Cook Estates, was wed to Bobby Womack almost 10 years her junior. Eric Green adds, quote, Not only was their planned wedding less than three months from Sam's death, the date was only one day after Barbara was named administrator to Sam's estate, end quote. 
I honestly don't include this next part to sling more mud, but just food for thought. Later, into the Womack marriage, it was discovered that her husband was sexually molesting her oldest daughter, Linda. I do not know for sure if it was consensual, except that after the discovery, she never spoke to her mother again. But the part that I'm getting to is that she shot her husband. Barbara luckily only grazed his scalp, but had a gun and wasn't afraid to use it. That's all I'm going to say about that. Except there may or may not have been the addition of cocaine use by then. And side note, sorry, I can't help it. The daughter, Linda, went on to marry her stepfather's younger brother, Cecil, creating the 80s duet Womack and Womack. Bobby Womack would write in his memoirs, quote, I don't speak to Barbara no more. Linda doesn't speak to her. Haven't spoken to Cecil for years. No one speaks to no one, end quote. The Cook family, Sam's siblings and parents, would recall the day following the funerals at the family home. Barbara seemed cold and unfeeling and then asked, quote, Did anyone say that they saw my car at the motel? End quote. None of the family were really paying attention at the time, but it did come back around into their conversations later that several of the siblings heard her mention that and thought it was very odd. But then they reasoned it away. It was also the same day that Barbara would ask the Cook family to sign a power of attorney form signing Sam's estate over to her. Sam's youngest sister, Agnes, would say, quote, We wouldn't sign it because she wouldn't give us a copy to give to our attorney first. She kept saying she couldn't do nothing without all of our signatures. She was desperate. She wouldn't even let us see what the papers said, end quote. If there was a will, then Barbara Cook would have needed the signatures of all on the will to have things overturned. But a will was never discovered. Sam Cook did have a will, they're sure of it. He was only 33 and may not have been serious about it or too detailed, may not have even filed it, but he discussed it with his father and a business partner that said, yes, yes, he had a will. It's said that his parents, siblings, and a few close associates would share half, and the other half would go to his wife and children, creating provisions for his out-of-wedlock children as well. There is no record of it in any lawyer's documents, and Barbara claimed she never saw a copy of it either, which would make his wife the executor of Sam's estates. By not finding a copy of Sam's will, she didn't need the Cook's family to sign the waiver. Barbara would divorce Womack in 1971 after six years. She died in April of 2021 at the age of 85, doing her best to stay out of the spotlight. As the final word, Green, representing the Cook family, says, quote, Personally, I believe that Sam was murdered at the Hacienda Motel, but not exactly as reported. We know that some entity was angry enough at Sam to exploit every humiliating detail that would destroy his image down to his last moment on earth fighting a middle-aged woman in a jacket and one shoe. End quote. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website. That's how much I love their products. 
They are all natural and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money back guarantee and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. From the book Our Uncle Sam, quote, As far as his legacy is concerned, it was once said, Sunlight is the best disinfectant, and I believe the time has come for my uncle to enjoy his day in the sun. Despite the actions of others, the timeless classics and warm memories Sam Cooke left behind have created a global following that ensure his time on earth is never forgotten, end quote. Sam's father, Reverend Cook, began preaching at Christ Temple Church in Chicago Heights, and while his preaching had a unique southern sound, it was his musical family that made him memorable. Five of his eight children were musically inclined, and Reverend Cook and his singing children became quite popular. The children were aged 4 to 14. Eventually, the group went pro and hired a manager to take care of all the bookings. They were earning 15 cents per seat at shows every weekend. By the time Sam entered high school, he had been singing at a professional level for almost 10 years. He idolized the lead singer, R.H. Harris, of the Soul Stirrers and Perfect Diction of Nat King Cole and practiced to emulate their style. He, along with four other teens, started their own gospel group called the Highway QCs. In an odd twist of fate, one of the members was related to the members of the Soul Stirrers. Sam would sing on gospel jubilee tours until he graduated high school. When the lead singer of the Soul Stirrers decided to go solo, thanks to his acquaintance and skills with the strenuous vocal arrangements, Sam was a perfect fit. He toured with the group for the next six years, but he also had his eye on the music trends of the day. He saw how musicians like Little Richard, Chuck Berry, and others had started gaining interest in quote-unquote chessboard crowds, meaning both black and white audiences. The manager of the Soul Stirrers, Bump Blackwell, believed Sam had the voice and the personality to make the jump from R&B gospel to pop. So, under Blackwell's guidance and his father's blessing, he recorded his first pop single, Lovable, in 1956. He recorded it under the name of Dale Cook so as not to offend his gospel following. But his vocals proved to be truly unique, that his fans that already loved his style recognized him immediately. Lovable was not a hit. The following summer, with a boost of confidence, Keen Records released Sam Cooke's first single. He proclaimed his rebirth by adding an E to the end of his last name. Side B was You Send Me, and Side A was his version of Summertime, the George Gershwin song from the Broadway show Porgy and Bess. December 1st, 1957, Sam Cooke appears on the Ed Sullivan Show to introduce You Send Me to the World. The next day, the single was number one on the Billboard pop chart. 
it eventually sold over a million copies. He had a natural business sense and negotiated his record deals in a way that were unheard of at the time. He charted 29 songs, first with Keen Records and later with RCA, who paid him a huge advance of $100,000 in 1960 and allowed him to keep ownership of his previous recordings. Cook founded his own label, SAR Records. He acted as talent scout and helped others get their start, including Lou Rawls and Bobby Womack. He wrote most of his own songs, sometimes working with his younger brother, L.C. His great-nephew beams with pride, writing, quote, He was the first African-American to own a record label, and he could write, arrange, and produce songs for the artists on his label. He understood the power of ownership, whether it was with respect to the publishing rights, record labels, or management companies, and positioned himself to eventually own and control all three. He took artistic control of his music at a point in time when very few white singers were doing it, and certainly no black singers were doing it to his magnitude. And he did it all before his 34th birthday, end quote. Sam was among the original 10 inductees to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when it opened in 1986. In 1987, he was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. 1993, he was the first recipient to the Pioneer Award from the Rhythm and Blues Foundation. 1994, he received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for his contributions to the music industry. Even though he never won a Grammy for any one of his singles, he was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Grammy in 1999. In June of 2011, the city of Chicago renamed a portion of East 36th Street as Sam Cooke Way. On October 8, 1963, Sam Cooke, his wife Barbara, his brother Charles and friend S.R. Crane tried to check into a whites-only Holiday Inn in Shreveport, Louisiana. When they were turned away, an argument ensued and they decided to go out and sit in their cars and honk the horn. Repeatedly. They were all arrested for disturbing the peace. Feeling the need to do more for the civil rights movement, since he did have the advantage of being in the spotlight, the hotel incident, as well as the inspiration he found in Bob Dylan's song, Blowin' in the Wind, caused him to dig deep. But it wasn't until he heard the speech from Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream on the Civil Rights March that the song finally came together, and, he claims, it came to him in a dream. He ended up writing, Change is Gonna Come, in 1963. Renee Hall, his music arranger, created a full symphonic sound. He said, quote, I wanted it to be the greatest thing in my life. I spent a lot of time, put out a lot of ideas, and then changed them and rearranged them, end quote. It was recorded with a full symphony and put on the album, Ain't That Good News, in February of 1964. There are only eight takes. He was intimidated by his own song. On February 7, 1964, he was a guest on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. At an impromptu decision, he sang A Change Is Gonna Come before a live audience. For some reason, the network did not keep the tape of the performance. Sam Cooke would never sing that song again.
He was not expecting it to do well as a single, but it was released as the B-side to his single, Shake. The record was released two weeks after Sam Cooke was shot and killed at the Hacienda Motel. It would become a civil rights anthem and considered one of Sam Cooke's greatest songs. It became the number three song in the Rolling Stone magazine's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. In 2007, this song would be chosen for the Library of Congress for preservation with the National Song Registry, calling it, quote, culturally, historically, and aesthetically important, end quote. The music of Sam Cooke is still alive and well today, and if you believe that he was murdered for some conspiratorial reason, I'm happy to say that it must have failed and only made his missions, his passions, and his dreams stronger. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Bag of Bones. I would really love to hear your opinion. Do you believe that Sam Cooke was murdered, or was he truly in the wrong place at the wrong time doing the wrong things? You can leave a comment on the Ragtag Network website, forward slash bag of bones, or find me on Facebook or Instagram. I look forward to connecting with you. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next time. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret. Produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited. Music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.